Welcome to Heavy Networking. We are joined today by Robert Chichone and Dave Tott and Herbert Wolverson. Uh, these three gentlemen are have been working on a free and open source software project that they have built to help ISPs improve network latency and responsiveness and improve the quality of experience. Keywords there, quality of experience for their customers. And that project is Libre QoS. Dave, Robert, Herbert, welcome to Heavy Networking. I'm going to have each of you introduce yourselves to the audience, uh, starting with Dave in a sentence or two. Who are you and what do you do? I run BufferBloat.net's Make Wi-Fi Fast and Cake projects. I'm a network theorist with a cause, an ex-sysadmin with a mission. Have you ever seen XKCD 705? That's me. Okay, XKDC705. I'm going to leave it as an Easter egg for you to go look up. It's worth your time. Yeah. And I think several of you will identify with that one if you haven't uh, seen that one before. Robert, you're up next. So my name is Robert Chacon. I own Jackrabbit Wireless. It's a fixed wireless ISP based here in West Texas. And that led us to creating the LibreQS project. Very good. And then Herbert. I'm Herbert Wolverson. Um, I work with an ISP in mid-Missouri called iZones. Um, I'm also the author of a couple of books, Hands-On Rust and Rust Brain Teasers. I teach Rust for Arden Labs, and really I currently live, breathe, and um, take to bed Rust every night. Okay, very, very good. So three of you, thank you very much for joining us in Heavy Networking today. And uh, Dave, there's a question I got to punt to you uh, first here, and it's about buffer bloat. Now, I know because we were talking in the back, John, you are sick of talking about buffer bloat, but uh, but it's a topic that's come up a lot over the years. Can you give us a quick summary of what the state of buffer bloat is in 2023? Is it still a huge problem? Yeah. Okay. So talking about buffer bloat is kind of like talking about polio, except that <laughs> polio and buffer bloat are, are fixed now. It's just... Everyone needs to get a, the shot of better queuing in their networks, and it's done. And I, I could fixable or fixed? Like polio's cured, but is buffer bloat a thing that's been is fixable or fixed? It's been both getting better and worse. Um, awareness has hugely improved in the last two years. There's been introduction of new speed test methodologies. You know, look at speedtest.net's current test. You'll see a responsiveness metric there. There's been better collection of better data by the federal government, and we've seen bloat hitting the data centers themselves. Um, so there's people get it more now, but it's got worse too. Um, there's a lot more devices hanging off of Wi-Fi in particular that aren't behaving very well. The microservices people are going around naively treating TCP as if it was a request response protocol. And everyone's virtualizing virtual things on top of virtual things upon virtual things, making the buffering worse. Um, I think we're finally turning the corner stuff the buffer bloat project developed a decade ago is hitting production and now most people have more bandwidth so you hit it less often but you know last week alone um 5g for me had over 260 seconds of latency built into it 260 and seconds 260 seconds i'm sitting there doing pings and seeing them come back 260 seconds later and in almost all the measurements I do of LTE, a, a very typical number is nearly two seconds for even modest loads. Um, so I'm hope, I, I hope that industry gets it soon. And then there's Starlink. Don't get me started about Starlink. Um, but overall, like I said, I think it is getting better for anyone that's clued enough to, to, to turn on the right things and specify the right things. So. Mm. It's polio, it's cured, it's just taken a long time for everyone to get the right shots. Now, I see LibreQOS, the, this free and open source uh, software project that you guys are behind, 
as uh, a answer that can help ISPs with buffer blood. Is that a fair way to characterize it or am I, or am I missing something here? Yeah, I would say that's a fair way to characterize it. So uh, LibreQS is essentially a high performance transparent bridge. It sits in line at the edge of an ISP's network and enforces customer bandwidth plans, but it more importantly maintains stable latency across the network fabric by using Cake, uh, eBPF, and XDP. So we have 10,000 or more customers being carried per box these days. It's capable of, of a lot of throughput. Um, and we think that this is a really good approach. Um, there, there are other ways to do it. So you can, of course, try to get on every single CPE, you know, an instance of cake, but that's not always practical for many ISPs. We don't necessarily have the kind of management to achieve that. So about two years ago, I got really fed up with video call issues on our network. Um, this is like a little bit before COVID. And um, we just wanted to deploy cake to every customer on the network. So we wrote uh, the first bits of what eventually became LibreQS. So thankfully calls for to tech support finally dropped off for video conferencing uh, users and gamers. Uh, that was a huge relief. And then we just GPL'd it and put it on GitHub. And from there, the code kept evolving. We saw more ISPs around the world taking an interest. And today, it's now become a, a quality of experience middle box. And it's and its fourth minor ver version with version 1.4. So it's a lot faster and more robust than the original code I had put out into the world. And thanks to all the com contributors we have, it's, uh, it's really uh, taking shape. Now, when I've implemented QoS schemes over the years, I've relied on the queuing methods that were available to me in, in a router or a switch. Um, we don't have cake as an option in a, in a router that I might be running it as an ISP. I need to run a middle box. Depends on who you get your boxes from. Almost all the smaller router manufacturers, the Microtix and the Cambiums and the, and the uh, UBNTs are doing FQCoddle and cake and been doing it for years now. Why is your hardware not have it? However, your question is really legitimate and computer people have, you know, 10 years worth of legacy gear stacked up and where it really makes sense to basically bang things out of the park by throwing a middle box in the way when you can't upgrade all that gear at the same time. Uh, okay, that's a good that's a good architectural point. If I've got a box that can't do it, I can drop the middle box in and make it happen and this wouldn't be an especially uh, high cost project either. We're going to get into some of the specifics as we go here, what it takes to actually implement this, what sort of bare metal you need. It's not, they're not exotic requirements uh, by any means. <laughs> I guess another question is this, uh, bandwidth is always the best solution for a QoS style problem. So does, <laughs> you know, am I actually going to be able to fix something if I can't just throw bandwidth at it? Am I going to fix something here with, uh, with Libra QoS? Bandwidth is a limited quantity too. You know, um, and if you can't throw more bandwidth at the problem, you need to do better queue management. Just hoping to get you to say, everyone, say this for me, please. But everyone in QoS doesn't work, right? Seems, can you get you? To <laughs> I mean, everyone knows QoS doesn't work, right? Is that what you want me to say, Dave? <laughs> I yeah. mean, and that, that's a fair. Uh, there it's, is lots of skepticism about QoS. Yeah, and of course, on the internet, there is no uniform QoS scheme. That's not a thing. So, yeah, we know that. You know that. But that's because the term generally means some kind of diff serve prioritization, which we all know doesn't work across the internet. But fair queuing and active queue management are very different. And they do work. Um, it's it's everywhere. And yeah, and uh, we, we kind of kicked that around trying to figure out uh, you know what to call it. Like we were considering Libra QoE, which is what we ended up calling the company. But because people kept looking for QoS because it's a more practical, frequently used term, we ended up calling code base that even though it really is more smart queue management, as Dave calls it. Uh, so Libra SQM probably would have been more applicable, but it doesn't show up nicely on a Google search. 
All right, so we're positioning LibreQOS. Now I'm going to get confused. LibreQOS and QOS in my mind, but but the pro, the, the 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 open source project LibreQOS is positioned uh, primarily at ISPs. I think that'll be the context of our conversation mostly to improve their customers' QOE quality of experience. But are there other plausible use cases, say uh, home networking enthusiasts or enterprises that want to, you know, could I drop this in at my house if I had the right box? Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, I, I would say with the, how ubiquitous video calling has become, it can be really helpful for enterprises, 5G and 4G networks, uh, low orbit satellite internet, pretty much internet access across the board. So anyone with, with tons of machines, it's a really good fit. Home networkers probably don't need the additional complexity of LibreQS, they can just run Cake individually. Um, yeah. but, but for a lot of enterprises, it would work. And FQCALO on the Wi-Fi, which is finally deploying in pretty large quantities. Also, sysadmins throughout the world should revel at this 10 millisecond sample rates we're getting out of LibreQOS. For the first time, you can get not five-minute averages, but inside the five millisecond sample rate required to do Nyquist theorem style stuff with VoIP and video. You can see what Sawtooth on Netflix and YouTube and the web and voice traffic in real time. So for me, as a network theorist and scientist, that I've only only ever seen still pictures of how the internet works, slowed down a thousand times or more by Wireshark. LibreQS is wonderful. It's it's like being a physicist, sped up enough to see inside the electron shell of an atom. I just <laughs> love it. If more novices and enthusiasts that took all the kind of static diagrams we have about how this stuff behaves and see it in motion and saw the sawtooth fly. Yeah, the sawtooth. It's it's an interesting. I, I've done a little bit of poking at uh, at some video streaming, like coming in from Netflix, and it is a very bursty uh, way that they transmit the data. It's not this steady stream at all. They they flood you with a bunch to I assume fill the buffer, and then uh, let that play out. Then send you another surge. Seems to be how it goes. And Spotify is kind of similar as I, but they're they're working with a smaller data set in audio. But I've noticed similar patterns from them. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's basically four seconds of a sawtooth and then off. Four seconds of a sawtooth and off. It's really identifiable. And you can see that what Netflix does to your traffic for those four seconds. <laughs> uh, and you can also see how different YouTube's behavior is. BBR is really neat. So I, I love getting this, the stats out of this kind of middle box at this level. It's just been fascinating to me. Yeah, when I was writing that code, I was blown away by, uh, um, because of the sawtooth effect, you've got all those zeros right in the middle. So every single average is completely inaccurate. Um, the... Uh, the peak amount is very different from what your average will say, and almost everything reports averages. So everything you know from your graphing systems is unfortunately turns out to be wrong. Wrong or misleading? Ah, it's misleading because anyway, if you know that an average um, could be all, this, all the numbers were the same, or it could be a couple of really big numbers and a few zeros, then you understand that it might be that, well, you know it's the average, but you don't necessarily know what caused that average. Um, so if you are using something that's kind enough to provide a max on a sufficiently fine-grained level, that's great. Half the time I see median being used instead of when they mean when they say average. But hmm. in this case, I was truly surprised because I'd never drafted at this resolution before. I worked and worked and worked, finally got the code to let me do it. Uh, looked at the graphs and it's like, wow, this is completely not what I thought, how I thought it worked. Hmm. Yeah. Welcome to my world. <laughs> We've mentioned the protocol or the, the QoS mechanism here of Cake. And a Cake was built on FQCODL, 
I want us to, for the audience here, to explain the fundamental, maybe it's a philosophical difference between cake and uh, and the very different queuing mechanism that VoIP engineers might be familiar with, which was low latency queuing. Dave, you want to take a crack at that? I, I really do encourage people to read the papers. There's a great paper on the Cotto algorithm by Van Jacobson and by Kathy Nichols. There's a good, several good papers on cake. Um, there's a lot of that, but I'll try to squeeze it in. Um, so I'll talk to LLQ first. It's a really good question. LLQ does strict priority queuing for low rate, low latency, but identifiable as VoIP flows. Okay. Um, FQ Cotto. SCADFQ, Cake, and FQPy, and the Linux current life schedule automatically recognizes low rate flows and gives them zero queuing. Any kind of flow that uses less than half its fair share and is well paced, which is an attribute of VoIP especially, observes nearly zero queuing delay. Um, for those that really want LLQ functionality, Cake also now supports the relevant disk serve markings, um, but unlike LLQ, it's reserved to a percentage of the bandwidth where an LLQ Everybody knows mismarked traffic will do bad things to, to it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. If everybody's special, nobody's special kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, correct. So instead of depending on explicit marking, markings, we depend on the rate. Um, and this covers not just VoIP, but almost uh, any slow, any all request response protocols like DNS, they all just slide ahead of all the queue building flows. By slide ahead, that means we could have a congested interface, and uh, but these particular flows, these uh, you know low bandwidth flows, are going to sail right on through the queue. They're not going to get queued up. That's correct. Okay. Uh, yeah. The, the simple math for this one is that if the arrival rate of a of a flow is less than the departure rate of all the other flows, then it automatically goes first. Very simple. But you have to see it in action um, and play with the math to really understand it. There's some, Toki has a really great paper on it with a really dull title called Analyzing the Latency of Sparse Flows in FQ Cuddle. It should really stand the LLQ lovers on their heads. This is a really simple technique that uh, just automatically makes all kinds of traffic instantly better. Um, Eric, by the way, uh, I'm not the inventor of most of this stuff. I'm a participator. Uh, Eric Dumaze uh, is the guy that invented this. Uh, he built on some prior work called DRR++, two work of papers. And it's got 100% uptake in the Linux world. It's part of the EDF scheduler. It's it's so much better than fair queuing. It puts an incentive into the network itself for applications to behave more responsibly. And um, it also has really enormous implications for the design of future end-to-end -end congestion controls. There's some really great uh, work that a fellow working with us on multipath quick that's going on, paper pending on that. So uh, all I can do is point people at the kind of graphs that Toki got out of that paper and say, hmm, or go measure for themselves. So um, did I manage to answer your question? I think I have a second part to that one. So the fundamental philosophical difference between, yes, us and LLQ uh, is that no explicit markings, just the natural behavior of the traffic itself. Well, and, and, and that in and of itself is huge because the way a VoIP engineer has been taught over the years with, you know, official like certification classes and these sorts of things 
you got to mark that traffic that's going to end up in that low latency queue. And then you, you set up the low latency queue for some policed rate at which traffic is going to be dequeued on some kind of a very specific time interval, which for VoIP is great. You, uh, you should end up as long as you've sized your policer large enough with, um, uh, no jitter is, is the way the result should end up. So that voice traffic is leaving the queue predictably and hopefully arriving at its destination on the other end in such a way that it sounds like a natural voice call. Um, here you're with, um, with cake, you're making the point that if it's a, if it's a mice flow, a mouse flow, very small, uh, it's going to be detected as such because math and be sent on through the queue, whereas an elephant flow, something, you know, a backup, whatever, a big file transfer, video streaming perhaps, is going to maybe get stacked up in that queue and get, and get buffered. But the small flows, which would include a voice flow, just sails on through the queue. So maybe we don't have, I see potentially we could still have a jitter concern there, but I mean, you know, we're still sending traffic right out the, right out the door quickly, not queuing it up. I, did I read that back to you well? It's really, I love hearing other people explain it back to me. The only thing that you kind of miss is that it depends on the mice coming out at an isochronous rate, you know, every 10 mm. milliseconds, every 20 milliseconds. And so if you have an army of mice all arriving at once, then this technique fails uh, over. And um, we see a little bit of that with video conferencing, but we are seeing enormous uptake of pacing itself in the Linux, the default in the Linux kernel now, it's the default in Quick. And so long as the application is well-paced, it automatically uh, gets optimized for the load by these algorithms. And it's not just cake, like I said, it's FQCODL, everything derived from it. Okay. Well, that's another, that is my follow-up question then, is how did uh, cake evolve from FQCODL? If you dig back through the Packet Pushers archives, I think I've got a show from 2015 I did with Rich Brown, if I remember the name right. We talked about FQCODL in some detail. Um, and actually did a, did a live demo showing that protocol in action as his voice traffic went from horrible to perfect uh, once he enabled the algorithm. It was, it was fascinating. But uh, again, the question then is how did Cake evolve from FQCODL? What are the big differences there? Okay. So a uh, big shout out to Rich. He wrote Intermapper years ago. He's been retired for some time and he helps out a lot of documentation and outreach. I really appreciate his work. Mm. So... Uh, the CODL portion of the algorithm came first. That was from Kathy Nichols and Van Jacobson, and that was designed to handle variable rate and usually wireless links for the first time. But the biggest observable use case we had then and now is uh, the pain point is compensating for queuing at the ISP. And people have always used, have you ever heard of Wondershaper? Do people still use that in this world? No. No. It was ferociously popular, and the techniques derived from Wondershaper you'll find in almost every QoS system that leverages SFQ. It's huge in the WISP market in particular. But anyway, I, uh, Wonder, I ended up writing a rant called Wondershaper Must Die. And <laughs> okay. I want people to go read that because it explains how great Wondershaper was in 2002 for end users when it was first developed and how it was so inappropriate for today's traffic. And it's... Um, that's a part where we ended up building what became what we call the SQM scripts. We took the best parts of Wondershaper and built this thing called the Smart Queue Management Scripts for Linux, which then went out to everything and spread around the world and all kinds of stuff derived from and you'll see stuff in BSD. Everything is using this set of scripts, but underneath all that is a really was a really hacky set of, of scripts and 
bash code and stuff like that to, to make it all work. And um, when the user base got that big, this was intolerable. And we just took the best of what everybody else had deployed and we ported it all into C. And we made it simpler and simpler and simpler. And then after we had it running really fast in C, we figured out how to do a whole bunch of really cool things that had never been done before. Uh, per host, per flow, fair queuing would be one of them. Um, what that basically means, fair queuing means that all your flows get treated equally. And if you have somebody doing BitTorrent's the classic example, um, IPFS is a current violator here. 150 flows, IPFS will load up, which means if you only have one flow going, you get one 150th of the bandwidth on your other machine. So with per host fair queuing, we said, well, the guy with 150 flows and the guy with one flow get treated equally. Mm. And that really knocked out a whole bunch of problems, uh, edge cases that FQ Cardo had had. Um, and we had a whole bunch of other features that the community needed. Um, there's a really great hack filter in there now. Um, there's a thing called GSO, GRO, uh, which is one thing that still makes me nine kinds of crazy. Um, I guess I want to explain that one. In order to make the TCP stack go fast, we bunch up 64K packets and ship it out as part of the initial windows, okay, at a gigabit. And then it hits the router, and it now has 64K to spit out at, say, 10 megabits, which takes a really long time. And so we, because of the rise of this offload, we put in into cake this ability to split packets back into packets again and fair queue them and AQM them properly. I, um, there's been some pushback on getting TSO to be a little less violent than it is, but now people are trying to do 256K TSO because of the data center, which kind of makes sense. And people yeah. still have 10 megabit uploads. So another big feature of Cake. Um, I got to call out that the community was really deeply involved here. Um, fellow by the name of John Morton was the lead on the project. Uh, Sebastian Muller, Kevin Derbyshire, Brian, a couple other people, and uh, Toki as well. And uh, we had this wonderful user-driven feedback in developing what became Cake. So when we finally got it upstream, it was shipping for three years before we put it in Linux. And uh, we finally got it upstream. Go ahead, Ethan. <laughs> you want me to read Toki's uh, Git commit on this uh, this upstream? Yeah. Uh, so th so this commit goes back from uh, July 6, 2018, uh, adding common applications to keep enhanced cake uh, Q. D-I-S-C, S-C-H underscore cake, targets the home router use case and is intended to squeeze the most bandwidth and latency out of even the slowest ISP links and routers while presenting an API simple enough that even an ISP can configure it. Yeah. <laughs> Which that, that seems, is that is that appropriately mean, Dave? <laughs> well, I had really thought that we would, I mean, when we first shipped FQ Coddle and ISP, Big ISP in France shipped it three months later. I thought we'd be done. I really thought we'd be done. I know you got a year. It's a hundred times better than any other queuing system ever developed. No kidding. And I just figured everybody would adopt it. And instead, it's, it's taken a lot longer than that. And we realized there was more difficult things. But in doing all the work for Cake, we reduced the amount of work required for a ISP down to one line of configuration code, hmm. the Adoxus or DSL. And I, I thought then when we were done and that it would go out. And um, it turned out that the, the, the people that are making hardware are actually shipping eight and 10 year old code. 
And it's still largely the enthusiast community and some of the more bleeding edge vendors, you know, Riverbed, for example, a bunch of companies did ship it. Um, Eero was really popular in the Eero 5, but it didn't become universal the way I thought it would be. Um, well, I, I could argue, Dave, that an ISP maybe doesn't care that much about quality of experience for the user because they're just throwing bandwidth out there and getting their monthly payment. And so what do they care if the quality of the experience is eh? So I, I don't know. They got they got bigger fish to fry, like, I don't know, IPv6 or something like that. <laughs> IPv6. Let's not talk about it. <laughs> this is the year, Dave. This is the year. But but Robert, you know, Robert, there are ISPs that care. Yeah, especially us, those smaller ISPs. I mean, we compete against directly against fiber and coax and other technologies, the recent 5G home internet solutions. Um, we, we care. You know, like we're here for our communities. We, uh, we're a bunch of local guys who just got together and wanted to build something interesting. And I know that there's tons of ISPs around the country, both wireless and and, uh, and fiber providers that, that care for their clients. They want to have a good quality of experience, but it's also a competitive market. And at this point, we have to differentiate ourselves with, can we deliver a quality of experience, right? Like, can we be the ISP where you just don't have that degree of an issue if you want to game, if you want to do video conferencing? This kind of stuff is now crucial. It really impacts people's livelihoods. So I think post-COVID, people are starting to really realize that um, this is... This is crucial. I mean, for, for most users, everyone who works from home, everyone who does remote learning, everything. Um, it's also, you know, our experience uh, putting in QoE is that it saves you money um, as an ISP, uh, not just because you're using less bandwidth in total, but because when people's video calls are running smoothly, when their VoIP isn't stuttering, they don't call your support number. And every support call you don't get is some money you just saved on handling support. And so you can... Import, um, include something like this and lower your over, overall cost of operations and benefit from it that way. Also, because, you know, we, we often joke that we never hear from our happy customers. We yeah, hope they're still there. Exactly. Uh, you also, um, they also are less inclined to run speed tests, <laughs> which hurt your infrastructure as well. So, yeah, anyway, could I just finish up a little bit on 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 K? Because I'm really proud of this. You know. Yeah, please uh, do, Dave. Please do. It's it's really beautiful, elegant code. I wish more people would read it and port it to more things. It's BSD and GPL licensed, and we wanted everybody to have it. So please go forth and make it work uh, on your systems. So uh, anyway, over the last seven years, um, company got into the QE uh, market. The pioneer here is Precine, and they have about 40% of the WISP market. Easy. Uh, and Cake in 2015 ran pretty well on 400 megahertz hardware. I, I have a little AGW here, hmm. you know, about 100 megabits. Um, but uh, so the WISP market is already well on its way to, to adopting the FQCODL and Cake derived algorithms, but it really wasn't clear to me all the other problems like IPv6 um, that ISP had until I met Robert. And I didn't understand how difficult it was in particular to deploy new gear. Um, an upgrade to gear, but Robert. Yeah, so I mean, the, fixing the CPA takes a lot of the CPU takes a lot of time. Uh, can't always be done. You have a lot of clients that might just have their own equipment, um, and it costs a lot. So it's it's not something that's practical to to do just to see what what will happen, um, and it doesn't solve the head end problem. So we have to sell plans. We have to integrate with our billing system, with uh, other systems, and manage bandwidth really carefully at every point along the network. And Cake's a crucial piece of solving that problem alongside XDP, integrating with our NMS systems like UISP, and then also tracking performance metrics like TCP round trip time. Uh, so that, that's all really crucial. 
It's interesting. You do track everything that closely. Uh, Robert, you're, again, you're on, on the wireless ISP side of things. Is that right? Yeah. So we, we run a fixed wireless operation and latency is, is king. I mean, in terms of the experience that your end user has. So gamers are, are just one segment of that. I think pre-COVID, we, we kind of were able to dismiss gamers more, but they were sort of the canary in the coal mine for actual latency issues that would impact things like Zoom calls, uh, conference calling, uh, telemedicine, all these things that have become really uh, crucial post-COVID. Um, so it, it's really helpful to be able to track these kind of metrics in order to see, well, maybe their their handoff is, you know, if you ping their their handoff router, they're doing fine. But what is happening behind the scenes? What's happening with the actual TCP session? Um, and being able to track that sort of variance and latency there really helps you to peer into their network and and resolve a problem before the client even realizes anything's broken. Mm. I I spent time working on a telemedicine network where the last mile was usually Wi-Fi inside the hospital and helping clients troubleshoot why won't the video communications kiosk work effectively across their Wi-Fi. Those were there were some long days tied up in that sort of troubleshooting, trying to make sense of what was really going on on their on their network because a lot of times they didn't know, didn't have the metrics. It was uh, it could be a difficult yeah. thing. Yeah. And there are deep underlying problems in Wi-Fi. Please Google for ending the anomaly. Fixed that seven years ago. I opened it twice. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, we've got a lot of questions more to get through. We got a lot of questions to get through. Yeah. And the thing I want to get to next here, uh, the the basic architecture of a LibreQOS installation. If if this setup has maybe convinced me that I want to try this thing. Um, what, what do I need here? We kind of alluded to it at the beginning. We just said it's a middle box. And uh, as I was doing my reading in the documentation, it's, it's a bare metal Linux server. It sits between the core and an edge box. And that's, that's the fundamentals of the architecture, right? Maybe, Herbert, maybe you're the right person to answer that. Yeah. So, um, ultimately it's a smart bridge. Um, you treat it like a pair of switch parts. Uh, it won't, um, interfere with any traffic that's going through that it doesn't know how to deal with. So it'll work with whatever routing systems you want. Uh, we actually just added the ability to handle in on one VLAN and out on another and use a single interface if you want to, to further reduce your uh, hardware requirements. It's uh, also unlike a bridge, it can peer inside VLANs, it can peer inside PPPUE sessions. Uh, some test code we have right now, it can look inside MPLS and figure out who the customer is from the traffic that's passing through, uh, as long as it knows which side faces your network and which side faces the internet, um, and use that to uh, map to an appropriate uh, plan, if you're into plans, or map to uh, the appropriate uh, individual statistics. Um, the We're currently call, calling the bridge component Bifrost because I'm a big fan of Thor movies, um, yep. and it's, uh, all free open source on GitHub in that part as well. Um, I think uh, Robert is probably better able than I to tell you how much of a box you need. I've been running it on really poor hardware on a Proxmox VM, and it's been working just great for my small ISP. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, we put through maybe three gigabits per second to load on our network, and we use a, some old AMD like 3600 CPU, some like $100 CPU. It's working great. We use maybe 30% of that CPU. So it's uh, the the performance has really been improved, especially with the Bifrost bridge. Yeah. In, uh, in the documentation, you you guys actually have a formula in there, so I can compute how much CPU and so on that I need. Uh, it wasn't a formula; it was like a chart, as I recall. Um, so that if, depending on how much throughput I was trying to get out of the thing, I would know how to size the box. Dave, you're shaking your head no. Ah, uh, said that, that 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 don't use the formula. Go measure. Um, 
<laughs> I, I think that what we've been trying is we've been keeping improving it so much that uh, the requirements keep getting lower and lower uh, over time. We have two sets of users. We have people that are running this as a virtual machine, which is working pretty well to four to six gigabits. And what we've been accomplishing with bare metal is mind blowing. Uh, just just mind blowing. Uh, we were forwarding at, I don't know, 25 gigabits at roughly peaked CPU on 16 cores at 22%. I have a picture of that. So uh, we can get in a little bit more of that later. So I wanted to, we have another question on that later one if we want to. I would rather go to the question. Well, um, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let me ask you about cores first, uh, then, because as I was reading through the docs, it felt like single core performance was super critical. But yet, you just mentioned a sixteen core box as being relevant in some way. All right, this is a complicated one, so hopefully, I can explain it down uh, to uh, make sense to everyone. Um, where single core performance helps you is because we're classifying the customers down and allocating them to a CPU. Single core CPU uh, performance makes the most difference for how much throughput you can give to an individual customer and the sum total of all of their flows. So for example, uh, we frequently bottleneck getting cake to shape much above 10 gigs a second right now, which honestly we've been jumping up and down because that limit was about a gig last time I checked a couple of years ago. Um, but in terms of uh, multiple cores, you probably have more than one customer. Um, I really hope so. Um, so ideally, you want to be spreading those customers out across all of the cores. And that way, each of the customers gets uh, very fast, low latency processing. Because the last thing you want to do is add latency while you're shaping them on the way through. Um, that will end up determining the total amount of bandwidth that you can push through is going to be limited by your total amount of CPU cores. How much you can give to one person is going to be limited by your individual um, core speed. So yeah. I hope that makes sense. It does. Uh, it's pretty straightforward, yeah. There's so many other variables, though. I'm looking hard at IRQ latency and Spectre. And... Yeah, I was trying to be quiet about that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, um, I am, I'm such a OSTD person that I'm looking at a small latency spike of about 400 microseconds, not milliseconds, and scratching my head as to where the heck that's coming from. You know, mm. yeah, the biggest win we've had recently was when we put Bifrost together. It it uh, bypasses the entire Linux bridge mechanism, um, skips the entire need to have a forward database lookup per packet that's going through, and we were able to watch the uh, um, soft IRQ numbers in top just go down from completely consuming the box to just a trickle at the bottom. It really is magical what you can do with some of the more recent stuff they've added into the Linux kernel. Does the NIC matter that much? Uh, I think the NIC does matter in some to some degree, right? Uh, yeah. Um, depending on how much money you want to spend, there are NICs that can run the XDP code partly on the network code. Um, if you go with Mellanox Intel or some of the other high-end ones, their drivers are fantastic, run the BPF um, XDP code partly on the card and partly in the software, but all before the Linux networking stack has done any sort of mangling. Um, you can get, I mean, particularly with some of the Mellanox Connect X5 stuff we've been playing with, uh, they, they are fantastic cards. Yeah. As one example of, of all the different things, we had a really great benchmark of an Intel uh, Xeon with an Intel network card, 16 cores, and it smoked a 64 core 
AMD with an MLX. Now, why, we don't know, but they, they are all interrelated, and we hope that our user base experiments on our behalf and lets us know what else could possibly work in these cases. Now, we mentioned XDP along the way here, and I think it's, uh, if we just take a quick step back, the context of running LibreQOS is in Linux. So we're talking about Linux, and we're talking about working within the Linux architecture and squeezing as much performance out of that as we can, uh, which takes us to XDP. Uh, Herbert, could you give the audience a high-level overview of what XDP is all about? Yeah, so years ago, um, there was a program called the Berkeley Packet Filter. Um, fantastic little program used to make FreeBSD boxes run fast and make everybody want them. Um, it was just a little bytecode way of representing how you want to match a packet. Um, it was so nice that uh, the it turned into eBPF, which is a bytecode you can write little programs to with all sorts of safety guarantees, like they're guaranteed to actually terminate at some point. Um, they won't even compile if you don't check your pointers to make sure you did some, didn't do something dumb. And they finally reached the point that uh, Linux started embedding them absolutely everywhere. So an eBPF program that is attached to XDP sees every packet that comes through a network interrupt before it goes into the network stack. And that gives you an opportunity to uh, look at it, measure it before it's been modif modified in any way. And you can also play fun tricks like say, okay, well, this belongs to customer number 312. They should be handled by CPU 10 and send it on its merry way. Uh, but EPBF also hooks in throughout the entire networking chain. So um, you can measure when, the, when a packet comes in uh, you can adjust it when a packet goes out of the interface, and that's how the bridge works, as it says, hey, we're leaving this interface. Let's not go to Linux. Let's just teleport directly over to XDP on the next on the next network interface and bypass the entire kernel. Uh, so then the XDP program runs again, realizes, hey, I just arrived. I don't actually need to be redirected. Um, as it goes into the traffic shaper, yet another XDP program can say that, uh, yes, this is Bob. Bob is queue number 312. Let's put Bob on queue 312. Bypass the entire TC traffic control filter system, which has the lovely side effect of turning off the problem with everything being under one giant thread lock and killing performance. And what happened is you just effectively ran four VM programs per packet, and you did it in numbers measured in, in uh, nanoseconds because XDP is so absurdly fast and it's accelerated on the network card for you. And the first time I used it, I, I really thought that looking at every packet, I was just going to be killing performance, but it is amazing. And, and a key there and something, we, because this, this has come up before, how do you get performance out of a, out of a Linux box, particularly bare metal? And uh, skipping, sending that packet through to the kernel it seems to be the key. If you can keep things, uh, you know, XDP, Express Data Path, if you can keep things uh, away from the kernel and and process it directly without having to you know, copy it and then uh, do something to it, maybe copy it back and do something to it and so on, you're saving lots and lots of time. And that's, uh, Herbert, what I think you just described here. We're not, uh, there's no copies that are happening. That packet is flowing through the system, through XDP, and being touched, you described several different programs that in different phases of the queuing and so on, you could take some action with essentially no performance penalty. Yeah, that's right. And, and so the bridging portion 
Um, Linux Bridge is fantastic, but it supports everything. Uh, we don't need to support everything, so teleporting past it just means that uh, the kernel no longer has to take a look for, um, do I know where to send this? If I don't know where to send this, I'll check the ARP table. I'll look down in the ARP table. I'll adjust the outbound. Well, no, you don't need to do that because we're not actually a smart switch. Uh, you've got a, a router at either end. They can torque ARP. So you've already given us the answer. We're just going to squirt the packet on its way uh, with just one check to make sure that it's not spanning tree and we're not going to lock ourselves out of the Equinix um, data center again. I'm still sorry about that. Um, <laughs> the uh, So, you know, I always tell people when I'm teaching optimization that the fastest code is the code that you never have to run. And that's really the basis of what mm. we're doing here is we're just not doing the extra steps that in our case, we don't need. If you do need them, they're beautifully implemented. I'm not trying to say anything bad about all of the really cool stuff in Linux. I'm just saying that sometimes if it's not what you want, uh, maybe don't think about running it. The best part is no part. Mm. You know, must. Now, is this, am I going to get significantly different performance if I run this through a hypervisor? Because all of a sudden I've just stuck an abstraction layer in the middle of everything. So is it going to, am I going to be sorry if I did that? Um, it depends on the hypervisor. Um, I've been testing on Hyper-V on Windows, and I can't get my brand new Core i9 to give me more than four gigs of network performance. Mm. Uh, boot the same machine into Proxmox, and I can saturate 10, 15 gigs easily. Mm. If you're going for 100 gig, a bare metal is the right answer for hitting 20 gig plus. The thing is, uh, back to our attended market, most ISPs don't put out more than 10 gigabits. There's 5,000 customers for 10 gigabits, for example. In Africa, you'll typically see people multitasking uh, over uh, 100 customers with an Intel NUC running our stuff. Their whole business is running on a teeny little NUC, supporting 100 customers at the US equivalent of $5 a month. So uh, while we're certainly aiming for this kind of crazy ass performance as we try to scale up, uh, it's very, very feasible to be using a virtual machine to start with to do it and mm -hmm. then scale sideways. However, I'm a bare metal guy. I care about latency. Um, and so ideally in my world, which is really not the user base is doing now, um, you start with doing all the packet processing, you lock it to 16 of your 20 cores, and then go right ahead, run whatever applications you want on the remaining cores on a virtual, go right ahead. But I care about every nanosecond we lose by doing this and the reliability. But you can go both ways. I expect people to keep running it in virtual machines and and it'll keep working. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we mentioned eBPF along the way here. How much of the LibreQOS code is actually eBPF? So there's about 2,400 lines of C, most of, which, most of which is header files, so 600 lines. Of course, this bypasses a few million lines in the Linux kernel and is less featureful than the Linux kernel. Uh, so there's 18,000 lines of code total, most of which is in Rust now, uh, followed by Python. Uh, and then there's a, an illustration here of uh, kind of the, the distribution. Yeah. So the Python is going down and the Rust and C is going up. Um, by the way, I'm, I'm an old aging programmer and I'm really loving learning some Rust from Herbert. But I'm also really delighted that some of my skills here have been proven useful in shaving off nanoseconds here and there. 
back to the question of smart NICs again. Uh, there is uh, a certain amount of functionality that we can offload to the NIC. We were talking about there earlier, Herbert. I think you mentioned that, that XDP can run uh, some of that code natively, which can help us with uh, with latency in certain circumstances. What about the more modern SmartNIC architectures? They're calling them DPUs, data processing units, or I think Intel uses the term IPUs, infrastructure processing units. Are those cards with these super fancy uh, processors that they have on board, is that potentially interesting to the LibreQOS project? I dream of a SmartNIC that didn't waste millions of registers on match action pairs. All I want out of one of these super duper smart cards, overly smart cards, is something that does the longest prefix max Longest prefix match, eh, prefix match with like 64k entries, just to tell it which CPU to interrupt, not where the packet goes, where it's from, but just which CPU to interrupt. Why is it? I mean, we've had TCAMs for 30 years. Why is a TCAM like that? So hard. Give me an FPGA. Give me anything that can do that, and I'm pretty sure we can crack 100 gigabits. Well, some of those cards will give you all of that, Dave. I think it'll give you, a, you know, general more of general purpose. It'll give you an ASIC. It'll give you an FPGA, all depending on what you're trying to do with the thing. And for that kind of price, I could buy a pretty good Xeon and a really good card from Intel. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that that there are is value to be had here. Absolutely. But it's that longest prefetched match in a few nanoseconds that we need the most. And I can't currently get it from anything. It's it, Why? Um, so... Robert, what about from your your perspective as a, you know, as a wireless ISP? Would you uh, pony up for one of those cards? I'd, I'd say probably, I mean, most ISPs at our scale are kind of maxing out at around 10 gigabits. Um, so like Dave was suggesting, like a $1,500 Xeon is probably a better you know return on investment there. But yeah, they, they seem super interesting. And we, if we can do a longest prefix match in the future, then that would definitely be a, a good route to go. But I think for now, we're, we're seeing some really good throughput for, that covers 95% of most ISPs uh, in the world. You know, one of the things that gives me a headache is figuring out where the longest prefix match is currently running because the answer is it depends. Uh, you spit off the XDP code to the driver. Um, if you're really lucky and you spend an insane amount of money, you get a message back that it's completely offloaded. Uh, most of the time, though, you get that it's driver offloaded and you don't get any indication as to exactly what it's offloading. So on some of these smart NICs, you've probably got your longest prefix match running in hardware. We don't know because it actually won't tell us. Hmm. I look forward to more measurements of, of these cards. And if somebody wants to give us a few, great. Well, let's take a step back from some of the nerdery and talk about the project itself a little bit. Uh, is is LibreQOS, is this a labor of love for you three? Or have you had success with getting sponsors? I know your, your hat is out for uh, sponsors to uh, support the project. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, it's a little bit of both. So my whole business is built around open source. And I felt compelled to give something back to the community that kind of made our ISP possible. Um, I think a lot of people have pitched in uh, just, just feedback and help throughout the community that have really made it possible for us to fight as a small ISP against these big incumbents. Um, so the first year I was writing, it was it was kind of brutal. It was difficult being the only person maintaining it. Uh, but since we GPL'd it, now we've had a lot of drive-by contributions from people all over the world. Hmm. We've also built a really great community on our Matrix chat channel. So we share all of our everyday struggles and successes like beyond just the, the, the software project. Um, and my, my wireless ISP competes directly against fiber and coax. So we're able to deliver a lot more responsive connectivity and win back customers that we would have otherwise written off. And I know that that's applying to a ton of other ISPs around the world. So it's really rewarding in that way to see um, them have the same uh, fighting chance that we do against uh, some of these big incumbents. 
And we, we hope that a business model emerges from this that's not uh, Snoopy or based on things like CPU count or the number of subscribers that an ISP has. If we could get to 100 regular donors at just 1,000 per month, we'd be able to do some really amazing things no one else has even conceived of yet. Mm -hmm. uh, but building something that runs this fast with six segments of, of reliability is hard. So it requires some top-notch programming um, and a lot of good server resources too. So we've established a GitHub sponsors page and we're in general covering the costs against the feature requests, but most people's time, including mine, uh, Dave's and Herbert's is uh, presently donated. So we would love to find multiple entries to entities to support our work, not just ISPs, but gaming companies, the big guys, Google, Cloudflare, Riot, Zoom, Craigslist, Salesforce, mm. these companies that really depend on their end users having really solid responsive connectivity. Thanks. To work with us and to, you know, uh, make it possible to, to make the internet better. So, okay. So you're, you're going to lean into the sponsorship model. You're not, uh, no major IPO, not, uh, not millions of dollars of a venture capital headed your way. You don't think? No. <laughs> You'd be able to do it, but yeah. We would take some investment if, if, so long as it can stay foster software and we can keep circling back into the ecosystem. Yeah, we want to respect the principles of like why we started this. And a lot of it is, you know, upstream first and uh, giving back to the community of, of ISPs and, and, you know, kind of helping the small guy. Well, if you, okay, if you, if you keep it as the FOSS model, then it's still a well-heeled sponsor. I mean, you could have one or two, you know, quote unquote, investors in that sense that act as sponsors that are keenly interested in the project because it's going to help them solve a business problem. Uh, you know, the AT&Ts of the world and so on uh, that, that could really take an interest and put a considerable uh, sum behind it, uh, that would be that would be useful in the sense that it gives the uh, the impetus to go ahead and, and do more development. That, you know, if you're doing it in your free time, you got to focus on things that are paying the bills. You can't give all your time to LibreQOS, right? We have been, it's been a labor of love for me too. Um, in part, I just want to put the Buffer Blow project down uh, if we can go help a few billion more people and I'm done, you know, I can retire. Mm. I've always been on the side of the little guy. You know, it's, it's not so much a metaverse that I want. It's an internet that's less annoying. You know, <laughs> I care about how well it works for everyone in the world. You know, FQ calls, which is the thing I'm most known for is in billions of boxes now, just invisibly doing its job. And it's in BSD. It's in your phones. There's gamers. That, I had a gamer from Turkey ring me up the other day to say, thanks. It's really mm. great. Uh, and there's some people in the Ukraine that are leveraging it too. And that's why we're here. We're here to make the internet better. Um, to kind of go back to your question, despite the responsibility I have for billions of installations now, um, I'm not getting, wasn't getting a lot of good statistics back and the usage network usage patterns have changed. So I got involved with Libre QoS in part because I wanted to, to see what had broken, just like Wondershaper had broken and what else I could improve. And um, I had a great chance to, to see, wow, RFC 3168 ECN on the way up. Never thought that would happen. Um, and another stat I got back recently uh, was both simultaneously depressing and, and useful. An ISP pushing 10 gigabits for 5,000 customers. A cake drops 20 million packets a day intelligently. And, um, that's great. I have, if I had a penny for every millionth packet that was dropped that way, you know, I I'd get a better boat, you know. Um, <laughs> but having gathered that insight um, as to how and where and when and why, I found a couple new optimizations for Cake, which ultimately will affect billions of people. 
And there's a fellow by the name of Mark Bockel has a doozy of one. Uh, he's writing a paper on it for quick, which is going to be really neat. Um, anyway, making about 30 cents an hour at this point. But I try to remember all the thousands of people on the shoulders we stand on and all the billions benefiting and keep soldiering on. Well, I thank you for your work, gentlemen, and uh, and what you're doing here. What are you guys looking for from the networking community to support the LibreQOS project now? I mean, are you guys looking for more coders, uh, maybe people that could write documentation? Uh, I mean, sponsors, I think that goes without saying. Uh, do you need more people to download it and give it a try? What What's on your minds? So version 1.3 is in production all over the world today. Our friends over at Uber in New Zealand keep uh, pulling 1.4 uh, from Git and trying it overnight on their customer base. We don't uh, and, test on animals, we test on production. I love those guys. <laughs> it really kind yeah. of And, you know, if, 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 just try it out. Uh, try, try out the code, try it in a, in a lab setup, see what you think about it. So put it up just even in monitor mode. So that way you can more deeply understand your existing network, kind of track a lot of metrics and, and see where, where you stand and then maybe try deploying it, you know, putting it, um, you know, just switching it up, see, see how it does. Um, yeah, you'll see a lot of stats that you haven't seen before. Um, in terms of help, um, if coding's not your strong point, um, just looking at the documentation, looking at the monitoring screens, things like that, letting us know what to fix is a great help. If writing's your forte, um, I'm busy writing books, so I would appreciate help from people writing documentation. Um, if you are good at JavaScript, then I love you, and I would love you to help me right now because I am very much a Rust guy and get confused every time I touch a dynamic language. And in terms of how to... Uh, construct and properly collect and plot some of the t the digest data that we've been getting. Um, if you know Plotly, we could use your help right now. Sorry. Right now, most of the bugs in the 1.4 release are now squashed and the feature requests are coming in faster than ever you can retire them. So you could use more Rust and C people to hang out with us. Um, we are very committed to being professional and releasing on at least a quarterly release schedule. Mm -hmm. uh, so 1.4 is due out on uh, March 31st. And when that's done, I, I would personally like to be playing with an ARM port, get some cake things upstream. And there's a really cool little command line utility that I'm working on called LQTOP. That I, this whole web thing, is, give me the command line. Um, so, Herbert? Yeah, so uh, 1.4 that we're working on right now is really all about performance and short-term analysis. We've made really just some massive gains in the amount of data we're pushing through and great reductions in CPU. Um, that does mean we can't do everything at once. There's not very many of us. So 1.5, we're thinking more about uh, the support picture for an ISP. So keeping a lot of this data in long-term storage, uh, building a great support interface that's built from our experience as ISPs, because we know what our support techs need to see. If So if Bob calls again and he's connected complaining that his connection is slow, you should be able to have an interface that can tell you exactly, is his connection slow? And if it's not, then it's probably his Wi-Fi. Um, do you need to fix his Wi-Fi? Do you manage his Wi-Fi? <laughs> um, if you don't manage his Wi-Fi, then you know it's up to you what you do about it, but giving you the ammunition to understand what's going on so that when your customer calls, you can be truthful and you know not like nameless cable companies. Um, <clears throat> If you see a problem, actually go and fix it. Potentially even be proactive and realize that, you know, hey, this backhaul is hitting 98%, even though the five-minute average shows that it's at 90%. We probably ought to have fixed that last week, mm -hmm. but it's very good to know that you need to get out there. So that's what I see for 1.5. 
Uh, we get excited. We have roadmap features labeled for 1.6 now, and I have no idea what they are. I would personally love to see how small I can make this program because right now I'm making it as I'm seeing how big I can go. <laughs> but honestly, that's something for the future. So biggest trouble I always have is I get excited and start writing. Well, guys, I want to go around the table and if you would share with folks how they can uh, follow you if you're socially active or otherwise get in touch with you, I'd appreciate that. And uh, Herbert, let's start with you. Hi, the easiest way to find me is I am at Herberticus on Twitter. Um, you can also find me as at Herberticus at Fostodon.org on the Mastodon network. Um, otherwise, go to Prague Prague, my publisher. Um, search for the word Rust, and I wrote half the books there that say Rust, and I'm their Rust series expert, so you'll get all my contact information right there. Excellent. And uh, Robert, on to you. Uh, uh, I can be found on the uh, Librec OS at Matrix chat room day to day, as well as the rest of us. So please drop in and, and say hi. Okay. Uh, Dave. Wow. I have a longer thing than that. Um, <laughs> I say something about the other, the kids here, you know, um, I love Robert's passing of the generation on to how free software and open source should work and his desire to give something back. Uh, that's really moving to me. Same for Herbert there. Um, Herbert's an ex-game programmer, so we get along. Um, and I got a lot of serious publications. I would like to encourage those listening to the show that have management in the C-suite uh, to go work, look at something I put out last year with BITAG, the Broadband Internet uh, Forum, called um, Latency Explained. 66 pages that hopefully a C-suite person might finally understand and help us build better networks. Um, but I also rant a lot on my blogs. You can find me on blog.zeroart.org. It's zero is the Spanish word for zero with a C. It means zero warts. And for the last couple of years, I've been more political than anything else. Um, ship cake, uh, you know, that's been done technically for four years. So um, I've been seeing a lot of results finally coming out from less biased studies about how bad the buffer bloat problem is. And uh, the bastards are still covering things up and smoothing out too many anomalies. So uh, I put down politics for a while, and I'm really enjoying coding again. So you can find me via email, dave.todd at gmail.com as well. And on Twitter is mtodd. Great stuff, uh, all three. Uh, thank you for coming on Heavy Networking today and having this chat about LibreQOS. We went deep. We got nerdy with it, and that was fun. LibreQOS homepage, if you're listening, LibreQOS.io. Or just search for it. You'll find it. There's plenty of documentation there. There's a whole GitHub uh, repo with plenty of information there, discussion boards, and so on. Anything you want to know, you can find out. And I just want to say thank you to you that are in the audience for listening to Robert, Dave, Herbert, and me go on about QoS and queuing and nerdy Linux stuff and so on. You out there are a most excellent human for making it to the end. And if you like technical conversations like this, visit packetpushers.net to find many more episodes of the Heavy Networking series, which goes all the way back to 2010. Yeah, that's right. Hundreds of shows out there for you. You will discover many other engineering-oriented podcast series at packetpushers.net as well. IPv6 Buzz and Network Break and Full Stack Journey, Day 2 Cloud, Kubernetes Unpacked, and Heavy Strategy. And if you'd like to talk at me, I'm Ethan Banks, and you can find me on Twitter at ECBanks. I'm on LinkedIn and on the free Packet Pushers community Slack channel, which you can join at packetpushers.net slash Slack. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers, and we're on LinkedIn there as the uh, as at Packet Pushers as well. 
And if enough of you care, we'll show up on Mastodon at the moment. I don't think enough of you do. I know Herbert, you were on Mastodon and so on. I've got a Mastodon account. I've been fiddling a bit. If, if you care, you're out there listening and you want us on Mastodon, let us know if that's important to you. I'd appreciate hearing about that. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.